What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of FilmmakerU.com. Every week we bring you an interview with a film professional to discuss and explore the craft of filmmaking. And of course, this week's no different. I'm going to be interviewing Michael Hart, editor for the documentary Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. Still follows Michael J. Fox as he explores his professional and personal life while overcoming an incurable disease. I can't recommend this movie enough. How they approach the recreations is fascinating, and I recommend you check this out before we do our talk with Michael, because that's what we're going to be talking about, is how they created those recreations. If you enjoyed these interviews, you're going to want to check out FilmmakerU.com, where we bring in the industry professionals to discuss their craft and secrets. And of course, if you use The Cutting Room as your promo code, you'll get 10% off. That's all one word, The Cutting Room, to get 10% off. Now, with all that said, let's hear what Michael has to say about editing still. How did you get involved with this documentary? Oh, um, I had worked on a documentary called Three Identical Strangers um, about five years ago. Um, I'm not sure if you saw it. And as we were making that... I did. It was a great doc. <laughs> oh, thank you. I- I'm not fishing for compliments. Um, <laughs> the first act of that m- documentary kind of feels, or the, the director at the time wanted it to feel like an 80s movie. And so we ended up watching a lot of Michael J. Fox movies to, to get the vibe of 80s films and... Um, and and during that process, we we thought, do you know what? He'd be an amazing person to make it about. So we contacted his agent and found out from the agent. They said, no, you're you're too late. Davis Guggenheim, the great director, um, has already started the process with Michael and game over. But then luckily, he was looking for an editor. My director at the time, Tim Wardle, who who directed Three Identical Strangers, said to Davis. You should look into Michael and um, not only is he a good editor, but he's a bit of a back to the future fanatic and, and loved Michael J. Fox stuff. So he knows the material. He may not know, you know, the Michael J. Fox that you see in the documentary, but he knows he knows his back catalogue pretty well. So I had a conversation with Davis and, and we were off to the races from there, you know. I guess my first question for you is, did you guys transcribe every single Michael J. Fox film? Yeah, it's kind of nuts. When you when I look back now at the final product, I didn't realize what we were doing when we were doing it. But no, we didn't transcribe it. About halfway through the process, I knew we needed to look at everything. And so I asked Davis for time. I was in London editing. and He was in L.A. at the start of the process. So I said to him, look, I need about seven weeks or eight weeks to just get on top of his material and how much stuff that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I'd already gone through archive of him being interviewed at different points in his life and his career. And we got some home movie footage. The audiobook's really helpful. But I remember as we were making it, I thought we need to look at his, his movies and his TV shows. The movies were actually pretty easy. I would watch them. And this is a really kind of uh, boring editor thing, but I have the ability to, to put a marker. If I see something in the, in the, edit i'll just mark something so if i see a close-up shot of michael i'll mark it and say close-up of michael looking to the right at a newsstand and i did that for about six seven weeks the movies were easy it, it, the movies were easy because there was less of them but the spin city and family ties was like you know it, it would have taken me me and my own months so i got a couple of assistant editors in, and we had a really good archive producer as well jackie cleary who found everything and i just went through the material i get kind of I do get obsessive about seeing everything in, 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 in projects that I work on and it kind of drives the directors insane because 
it takes a long time but i always say this will pay off in the end if, if you give me the time to do it so but in this case i had to have assistance to help me go through a lot of the material but it wasn't transcribed it was just a matter sorry it was a very long answer to 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 your question which is we didn't transcribe them we just watched them all you know how much footage outside of the actual movies and shows did you guys have like uh interview and uh other interviews and his uh family home videos that stuff uh it was a it was a good amount you know it wasn't massive it wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of home movie footage um there was a lot we started with his audiobooks that was the first that was the first place to start we we got really lucky on this project for two reasons one we had michael's audiobooks as a starting point because when i started the project me and davis sat in a room together and we there was nothing the, the the only thing we had was let's make a documentary about michael j fox and he had had expressed an interest to davis that he wanted to do it too and, and it was it was a blank piece of paper and normally in an edit i come on 80 percent into the process or 70 percent. but actually i kind of hate the name i hate the word post the phrase post-production because i don't think editing is post-production anymore a lot of edits are starting way before after the production so we start but 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 we got very lucky because the first place we went to was his audiobooks and specifically um, uh, lucky man which is excellent and what's great about them is that he read them he read the audiobooks so it's not some random or just kind of reading his stuff and also he's a brilliant writer like, and he's such a good storyteller in the audio the book is brilliant lucky man was my way and it was the, one of the first things that kind of inspired me to to think about a documentary it's so well written and it's funny and it's very reflective of the documentary you see like the tone of it as we kind of wanted to so sorry we started with his audiobooks which is like 10 hours 10 12 hours and then built an arc from there and then i got that down to an hour and a half and then after that it was like what archive have we got to um illustrate the things he's talking about in his life and um i don't know there's about maybe 150 hours of of archive of him interviewed on different talk shows and every time he released a movie there was 10 interviews and we'd use that kind of stuff and behind the scenes footage and i i, I honestly sorry again it's a long answer to your question which is i don't know how much footage but we had a lot <laughs> it, so and we was is it endless did you use the uh because he essentially like throughout what I, I assumed it was voiceover, but are you using clips from the book then for the voiceover parts or did he come in and record that stuff? Okay, so the process was, we started with his audiobooks. Yeah, a lot of the, the voiceover that you hear in the movie mm -hmm. is him from the audiobook of Lucky Man, which I think he recorded around 2002, 2003. And his voice is great. And it kind of, you know, I always loved the sound of his voice anyway in his movies, but in his audiobook, there's something about the tone of his voice and it's almost playful and so we use that as a starting point and then we had not planned to shoot any interviews with michael we were going to do or i was going to do that was my idea that we could just do this entirely through archive you know we use his audiobooks and then we build archive on top of that or we use his, the archive from different points of his life to kind of illustrate the things he's talking about in his audiobook because the audiobook like gave us a good good arc but there were gaps in his story that whoever had edited his book into audiobook form had caught out a lot of things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it cut out things that we were annoyed about. And I just thought, well, we just won't go there. You know, maybe that guy's already done the job for us. One section on Teen Wolf, when he talks about putting his makeup on in Teen Wolf and saying things like, I had to eat my lunch through a straw. 
and, and I'd read it in the book and I knew it was there and I was like, that would be great. But in his audiobook, he hadn't recorded. So Davis's idea was, well, why don't we just go and see how he is now and if he can record that stuff or even talk about it in an interview. Let's just interview him and see how we go. It'll, we may only use the audio. Davis went to New York and shot an interview with Michael. I was in LA at this point. Or sorry, I was in London. And he sent me his dailies, I think you call them in America, and uh, his rushes, and um, told me to look at them. It was about a four-hour interview. And I remember the first day I watched it, and I was completely blown away by it. It was just like, this is easily the best interview I've I've ever had in my edit, if not I've seen. It was just the way he told the story, and so present and so funny and witty and and you know most of all he's just honest and gave everything and him and davis had such good rapport but once we had that the game changed it was like okay we've got two things now we've got his interview in present day and his audiobooks and the challenge for us then was how do we how do we edit those together and that was that was the next phase, you know. You also have the footage of him on New York streets and has one of the my favorite parts is where he falls over. It's amazing. The woman goes to help him and he's like, you knocked me over. Or like, I can't remember what his line is, but it's just you, such you, a cool... you knocked me off my feet. Yeah, 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 you knocked me off my feet. It's <laughs> like, oh, so good. Because it makes it, it almost breaks the tension in the sense of like what he's dealing with. And, and that's what we were always, we always, we, Davis talked about this a lot which is when people think about Michael J. Fox and what document the documentary that are going to see, people still think about it now, those who haven't seen it. They are expecting a very sad documentary or a very kind of, you know, this is very much about Parkinson's and that's it. And that section of the movie when he wakes up in the morning until he falls over is basically what the audience were expecting. Like they were like, okay, so we gave them just for a beat. This is what, you know, people expected to see in this movie. And then when he said that line, you knocked me off my feet, he, he flips the tone of the film. He to us it was just okay, now we can do what we want tonally. Mm-hmm. We we can have fun. We can because he's allowing us to, because that line just does it just says everything about his character. And yeah, it's it's an amazing line and um uh, it was basically the starting point for the for the the tone of the documentary. Well it's interesting because I remember seeing him in uh curb your enthusiasm originally yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's then great. i saw the bit in it but i feel like it's if you're not ready for it you would take that out of context pretty easily yeah yeah uh, no i do want to know like that flicker with his finger like he talks about sort of trying to explain the the flickering how did you guys come up with the sort of effect that you were doing like who was it an idea that you guys had before as you sort of came into the cutting room or was it something that was discovered in the cutting room? The pictures or the sound or... Well, he's talking about and he like holds up his hand and then his finger starts to flick and you get that sound of like the wings or something yeah. fluttering. Yeah, yeah. The moth swing, a moth swing, I think he thought yeah. he used to describe it as. Yeah, there's a few moments in the, in the documentary slash movie where we just didn't have the archive to tell the story. We, we didn't, we wanted this to be entirely from his point of view. That was really important. It was his chance to say, tell a story. Um, and so I had built a lot of, a lot of the, like I said, I used the audiobook to, as a starting point um, and used a lot of archive then to kind of, I hate using the word picture up, but to, to kind of illustrate the things that were happening based on the things he said in the audiobook. But what we realized, and Davis saw this a mile off, he saw it way before I did, 
is that there isn't there isn't the archive to tell this story. There, it just doesn't exist. We're going to have to be creative. We're going to have to think of new ways to tell this story, to tell his story, and to keep it. There, we could just put other pictures there, but but what would happen every time I did it? You know, I'd use like archive of a moth uh, fluttering, but it was somewhere. It would push you out. It was never his POV, and that 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 was the the challenge from the start of the film: is how do we always keep the audience in his shoes? And the first scene is him in his room with looking at his hand. It's like, okay, so how do we how do we do this? How do we tell the story? And 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 Davis's answer initially was it was it's very simple. It's like, well, let's recreate it ourselves. Um, and so he shot it. We storyboarded it. We had a guy in Barcelona, a guy called David Navas, who would. I was in London. Davis was in LA, and and Davis, uh, David Navas was in in Barcelona. And we'd all we'd find a window of time, one maybe for an hour a day, once once or twice a week, and we'd storyboard stuff. And he would do it in real time. So we would play him a piece of the audiobook, and then he would start to draw things. And Davis would say, "Davis was excellent at it. I wasn't very good because I had my head in archive." Davis would say, I want to see his hand move to the right. And so we then had a cut that had archive and storyboards, and it was an hour and a half, and his interview. So we had we had all that stuff in. But but I always felt that there was something missing. Um so sorry, and then he got a, he would have got an actor to shoot some stuff. That was the plan. But when I as we were cutting it the whole all, all the way through, I always felt that we were missing a piece, that there's something not right with just, it just felt slightly, just almost felt too easy that we were doing the thing that a lot of people just do, which is like, let's just shoot recreations where we don't have archive. And, um, and, and because we'd watched so much of his, I was so, I'd watched so much of his movies and I was so um, familiar with, with every shot in his, yeah. In his back catalog, basically, and look, I, I don't mean to be arrogant, but when I went in work, I can't remember anything like outside of work. I can't remember what I did yesterday, or I can't remember a magazine that I read two weeks ago or an article. But but for some reason, when I'm in the edit, I, I can remember most shots. I can remember everything I've seen, and, and I have a search system in, in Avid. But um, as we would watch the cut, I would start to think about the shots that I'd seen in his face. I was like, well, my issue was that in the in the recreations, you're always looking at the back of his head because he's an actor. We can never show the, his face because he's mm-hmm. there's an actor playing one of the most famous people in the world. And we just can never show his face. So for a lot of those recreations, we're always going to have to look at the back of someone's head and it's going to push the audience out. So then my solution to that, I thought, well, what if we try and start to use clips from his movie and and, and use his face to then cut to, to to kind of place him at that period in his life in these scenes and once we did that what what happened then was I would take a shot from something like Bright Lights Big City and, and he would be looking at something and 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 Davis then reworked the storyboards to match those movies so then we went backwards so then everything that he'd storyboarded we re redid you, you know based on the movie clips that we used in the film which kind of people seem to dig it at like which is nice it's one of the few times where there there was moments in the film where i'm like am i watching a recreation or am i watching a clip from a film because it would happen Good. so quickly yeah. that you're just like wait a second <laughs> Is that yeah. a person pretending to be Michael J. Fox or not? Uh, yeah. Look, 
and and you know it was a it was a real fun thing to work on that trick but it was always I said to Davis always has to be in service of the story at some point you can just get carried away and we do it for fun and make scenes because we can but but it always had to be in service of whatever story or whatever scene he was describing at the time um and the way in I think one of the the kind of best or the most effective examples of it was the first one that we did which was when he's talking about back to the future and getting a script Mm-hmm. And and we had shot and thought about storyboarding a guy getting a script and reading it, and 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 I had a clip of Bright Lights Big City where he's reading um, just a random piece of paper, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, let's try that. I added that to the audiobook, and it kind of worked. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. That may work, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. Um, you, you, sometimes in the edit, you get that kind of rush of excitement when something starts to work, and it, it was kind of. But when we, well, what happened was, I took the the the, mo- the kind of motif, the musical motif from Back to the mm-hmm. Future, and kind of goes did a little in. When we added that to the scene, you had this audiobook picture, and that when those three things came together, it, it was kind of it was like opening the door to another dimension. <laughs> I said, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be the thing. I sent it to Davis, and 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 he woke up the next day and sent me an email and said, "This is us. This we need to go for this and not be afraid of." you know if it works or if it doesn't work yeah. but this feels like something new and in an interesting way and, and it's reflective of michael j fox which he he likes to play he's very playful and and we get to do the same now like we get to to, to play with um the movies and also it's just as i think somebody in the new york times wrote we're using michael j fox movies to make a michael j fox movie and it's true that's that's basically what we did you know what would you say was the most challenging scene to cut the first one's always hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, the most, it was the first and the last, it was the first scene and the last scene. Um, the first scene was so hard because, because we were never fully sure if the audience was going to take the leap with mm-hmm. using archive in a, in a different way. You can see in the film, it becomes the, the, the technique becomes more and more confident as the film goes on, as we did with our method. Yeah. Um, but initially in that first act or that first scene, there's a lot to get through. There was a lot, like he's waking up in his bed, his, his fingers flickering, and, and we have to establish who he is at the time as a character. You know, who's Michael J. You have to assume some people don't know, but people want to be refreshed as to who he is. Mm-hmm. And we've got to set up that he's a movie. There was a lot of things to set up there. And it's the top of the film, and you don't want to be doing too much exposition at the start. Um and and I think it was that was a scene that we just kept going back. We kept, you know, we would go off and we cut this second scene was flawless. It was such an easy thing to cut. It was so beautifully shot. And um, when he he wakes up in his apartment and he walks and he leaves, and that's just like you know, I, there's very little editing to do there. It's just like that's his his um, space. And, and and the present day stuff was really easy to cut because it was just purely the Michael J. Fox show. It was when I basically sat back. I used to love cutting those scenes because I knew I. I could go home early because they were so easy because he just nailed it every time. And I would take the scene and there was very few moments where we were recutting and taking notes and we need to figure out how those scenes seem to work on their first pass. But, but the, the scenes in the past when we're using the archive in a different way, were all tricky in their own, in their own right. But the first one was really, we're kind of trying, how do we 
start a movie is hard, but how do we introduce the audience to this kind of grammar that we're trying to figure out ourselves, you know? And that was why we just kept going back to it. And by the end, we'd cracked it. And... Showing the film, like when you're working on a doc, showing it to the subject is always a stressful time when it's like sort of done. But then if you're also a fan of that <laughs> subject, <laughs> uh, it sort of doubles up the stress. So what was it like showing him the cut? Were you were you there with him or did you just get feedback afterwards? I've been editing for about 20 years. I've been doing it since I was about 18 years old. I kind of started as soon as I left university. I just started using an edit. But to this day, I struggle to show anybody my cuts, mm-hmm. even the directors I work with. I loved lockdown pure in for work because I didn't have to be in a room with, and I would just send them quick times. I, yeah. to this day, struggle to show people in a room. I hate viewings. I don't like it. Um, it's just more reflective of me than anything. Anyway, but, and Davis, he understood that too, but, but his method was the complete opposite, which is we show people all the time. Every week we'll have a screening. Um, yeah every week he loved it and it was hugely beneficial I learned so much from those screenings and the film became better and better because of it and and in my in my word I would just go into a room I would cut for six months and then finish show a product and that wouldn't that's not how it works and it doesn't really work but I've watched Mega J Fox films since I was about four or five years old and um, you know what he's like he's just he's he's one of the greatest actors of of all time and you know has be, has become one of the greatest people of all time through his, his his work with his foundation and so the idea of of showing him a cut to me was like to the point i was like i don't think i can be there i said i'm saying Davis, i'm not sure I, you know it doesn't matter if i'm there or not davis like you have to be at the screening and um i had never met him before i had one or two zooms but davis did the talking and i kind of went very quiet and just listened and tried to not say the wrong thing we were in LA and we had a rough cut of the film which I thought was kind of working but there's loads of work to do we'd only been in it for like 10 weeks or 12 weeks but um he then showed up with Tracy and his son and a few other people to watch it and (laughs) the most terrifying thing that I you know I'm just like this is kind of carnage and, and I have to I'm presenting to him. Here's what I consider as an hour and a half of your life, and 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 uh, I'm sorry for all the stuff that I cut out and don't think was relevant. And um, but but what was amazing is he is exactly how, as you expect him to be, and and more, and was was so um, he was really complimentary first, and um, was very much in favor of giving the filmmakers the a license to to make the movie even after he'd seen the cut he had a few suggestions which were really good ideas and really strong um he had a really good sense of timing and narrative and um his comic timing is brilliant he knew when the jokes were outstanding they're welcome and he suggested a few things and um so so it, it was great and he's worked with amazing directors and made amazing films and and he i'm not saying I'm not comparing or work to those directors such as de palma and spielberg and robert zemeckis and peter jackson he's worked with these people so he knows how to make a movie so actually once i got past that it was, it was so beneficial to have him in the edit when he could and when he had the time to watch a cut and um and tracy as well she had suggestions and they were all great and um it, it, 
it, re- it actually really helped even once I got past the, the fear of it. It was, it was great. Well, it blew me away in the dark when they said his comic time and family ties. They're like, oh, we don't think he has the comic timing. <laughs> which was, I know. Like, especially when you see like uh, when he wins the Emmy and he's like, I feel four feet tall or whatever he says. Brilliant. You can see he's got it locked and loaded. And he's just waiting for everyone to calm down so he can put in the joke. Like, it's just timed so perfectly. Well, I, I did a I did a screening in, in London. I thought yeah. the guys couldn't be there. And the, we had a premiere in L.A. that was canceled. So I did a mini mini premiere in london for all my friends and family and random cinema ticket buyers and uh i took a joke i wanted to say something funny at the start of the screen and i took a joke that he made um about i don't even want to repeat it because i i said the joke at the start of the premiere and nobody laughed and it was yeah. the exact same joke and i was like okay it's, it's about timing it's about yeah. comic timing and you cannot take michael j fox's material and fob it off as your own there's a magic to the way he delivers it that I just don't have. <laughs> and I figured it out. So I learned the hard way on at the premiere. And my last question for you, what would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film or TV show to watch? And I would add an addendum to that. What's your favorite Michael J. Fox project other than yours? Well, look, I mean, I, I could show you about Back to the Future. I have a Back to the Future poster framed in my hallway. And it, it's, I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure because I, I have no guilt about loving Back to the Future because I think it's, it's kind of flawless. I mean, as a guilty pleasure, definitely something from the eighties, like inner space. You know, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch that every so often, and it's so good. And I'm a huge Joe Dante fan. Yeah. My favorite Michael J. Fox project is Without a Doubt: Back to the Future. Is it? Is it always the first one? Or I was obsessed with the second one when I was young, and yeah. I, it was the first movie I saw in the cinema. Um, and I hadn't seen the first one. I was like six or seven. And uh, I remember going and I had no idea what it was, what was happening because I hadn't seen the first and it's so integral to the story of the second, but I was completely mesmerized and it was just like the future seemed like it was real. I thought I could kind of reach out and grab the hoverboard and went home and wrote to Santa that night and said, I want a hoverboard for Christmas. And the truth is then I got one, like 20 years later, I found one on eBay and, and, uh, um, and I bought one, but uh yeah, the first I think the first is flawless when I watch it, and it's just I watch it every couple of months, and it gets better. It's going to be better. To, I haven't watched it since we made this, but I'm looking forward to. It. Yeah, as a kid, I loved the third one just because it was like so different from the first two. Like it obviously I, isn't as popular as the first one, but yeah, and I think it's because it's a western and it has less. You know, you can have less fun with it because there's no hoverboards or the, the yeah. DeLorean isn't in it as much. But actually, the the third one the script is so tight and so well written and, and um, everything kind of pays off. And a lot of the things that are happening in second, yeah. they're limited what they can do because they're coming off one and two, but yeah. it's really good. And the, the older I get, the more I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, and they shot two and three at the same time. So they're sort of locked. It's insane. In. It's completely insane. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how they did it, but uh, I remember that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Hey, no, no problem. So that was my interview with Michael. I'd like to thank him for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Jason Banky, my producer, and of course, my sound editor, Evan Winch. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.